electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla in for Brian Sullivan. Tonight, an Uber ultimatum. Its CEO does details a controversial EV plan that could leave many drivers by the side of the road. The Supreme Court ends affirmative action in college admissions. Will corporate America overhaul its own diversity efforts next? A viral tweet on Airbnb grips the attention of housing watchers. Why that could signal lower prices around the corner. Virgin Galactic takes a giant leap forward for space tourism. Is it time for investors to fully jump on board? And a financial behemoth joins a new crypto race underway on the street. That and much more. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Good evening. We're live at CNBC's global headquarters. A lot of news unfolding at this hour. First up, it's Nike and the state of the consumer. The apparel giant giving some fresh signals about retail headwinds in its results and its discounts that are catching investors' attention. Nike says product markdowns weighed on profits, along with higher costs on freight and logistics. Shares dropping after hours already in the red this year, down more than 4%. And those discounts probably aren't going away soon. Here's what Nike's CFO had to say on the call. We feel great about where we are, but we recognize that next year the environment is going to continue to be promotional. And that even puts pressure on our wholesale partners in terms of how they think about managing through the first half of the year. Nike's choppy performance stands in contrast with some other consumer-related sectors that have been on a tear. Shares of airlines are an obvious example. Cruise lines, hotels, restaurants, all red hot as summer heats up. And consumer confidence, as you know, now at a 17-month high. So where do we stand tonight in the wake of Nike's results? Let's bring in Solus Alternative Asset Management Managing Director Dan Greenhouse and Laffer Tengler Investment CEO and CIO Nancy Tengler. Guys, it's great to see you both. Dan, a lot to unpack here. There's the American consumer. There's the Chinese consumer, and there's this mix of like demand and markdowns versus higher costs and SG&A. Uh, what was your take? Yeah, I mean, listen, Nike's a good company to follow. We know that they get, uh, call it 60% of their revenue from the rest of the world, a, a chunk of that from, from China and the Asia-Pac region. Uh, and in that sense, what following what they have to say is, is crucially important. And on that front, I think the comments on the freight side of things, the higher input cost side of, kind of, side of things, Bear close watching because we know that they've been struggling with this for a little while, among other things. Uh, I'm obviously not a, a Nike analyst, but we know they've been struggling with this. And I think that the most important takeaway, probably, maybe Nancy disagrees, is they signaled to me that it looks like price increases are probably done for now, or at least going to be somewhat muted going forward. And and we can infer for uh, we can infer why that might be. And one possible outcome is that the consumer simply won't bear any more price increases. And, and Nancy, let's broaden it out a bit to the consumer because there's a, a great sort of bull bear debate right now regarding the consumer. The bulls argue real wages are rising, gas prices are down, uh, companies are hiring, and and spending appears robust. On the other hand, there are all these dark clouds in the second half: uh, student loans, tighter credit, jobless claims beginning to tick up a bit. Are you leaning one way or the other, or is it still? Are you still looking for more definitive clues? 
Well, I, th I think, Carl, uh, the high-end consumer is still in good shape. And, and we've seen that as companies have reported uh, that, you know, they're still spending. But the, the mid to low-end uh, consumer, many of whom do have uh, student debt, and and let's be clear, that's $5 billion a month that could come out of spending. So I, I think for me, one of the, the, the most interesting things that the company said was that growth, that margins were down due to higher transportation costs. But we heard exactly the opposite from Lululemon, which would be considered maybe a higher end uh, consumer uh, company and one that not only delivered, but saw margins expand. So I think some of this problem is unique to Nike and the valuation is such that, um, you know, we were, we got out a while ago. It's looking interesting, but I still think it's too soon to step in uh, because the company is, is sending out mixed messages, in my view. That's actually a really good point, Dan. And one thing that struck me was SG&A up eight, meaning their administrative costs in an era where so many companies are talking about efficiency and trimming headcount, I wonder if you think there is still a wave of companies for whom so-called cost discipline has not yet become the number one story. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the story over the next 12 months, whereas over the previous 12 months, you could get away hiring lots of people. Obviously, wages have gone up. We, we know that um, We know that, uh, that specifically. Uh, the problem going forward is if you are the royal you for the retail sector, but the economy in general, are unable to pass through price increases going forward akin to what you've passed through in the past, and you start to see margin compression, which we've sort of started to see for the S&P 500 as a whole already, what are you going to do? What are you, a company, going to do to protect margins? Probably and realistically, the first thing you're going to do is start to let people go. And I don't mean to suggest that there's some huge wave of layoffs that are, that are coming in the next day, week, or month. But as we look ahead, in order for, to protect margins, there's really nothing else for companies to do but, but start to lay off some people. Yeah, that's what's interesting, Nancy. Again, these, these false tells. Jobless claims was a great example where we were getting into the high 260K range, settled back uh, in this morning's data. Uh, but it's, it's amazing to me how the economy feels a lot worse than it is, especially on a week where you had good housing and good confidence. Uh, and I just wonder if you think we are so conditioned to watch for signs of recession that we're in some ways talking ourselves into one. Right. Yeah, I think so. And then we also put a lot of emphasis on the numbers, but they end up getting revised and then nothing, you know, there isn't a redo on the market action from the day they came out. Uh, so I, I do think, I mean, this, I've been doing this a long time, Carl, um, and this is probably one of the most complex investing environments I've been in. And the data has been difficult to parse. Um, you know, we've seen that with the Fed, for example. So I, I do think you have to look company by company. And the other thing in this report that that was odd to me was the inventory numbers. They said they were flat in dollar terms, but they were down in units. Target and Walmart have reduced inventories materially. But most retailers, they're actually up for retailers as a collective group. I think that's going to put additional pressure on Nike as they try to raise prices in 2024. Um, and, and I think you just want to wait on this one because there's there's too much conflicting data. Yeah. I mean, inventory's flat is a lot better, Dan, than up 44 or whatever it was a few quarters ago. But it does yeah. raise questions about whether or not we can all look forward to sales in back to school and eventually to holiday later this year. Yeah, I mean, listen, retailers in general are sitting on an enormous amount of inventory. This we know both from a micro, from listening to what companies have to say, and from the macro data that the government provides. And as we look out in the coming quarters, what's going to be particularly interesting, Nancy referred to the student loan payments, which presumably are going to restart in the fall. 
Uh, you've got these mysterious excess savings, which seem to never run out, but are probably going to run out sometime, <laughs> sometime in the third quarter. And, and you, that, that'll come together at the same time if monetary policy works the way that we think it does, that it starts to have an impact over the next six months. And you have this uh, conf- confloration of, of, of events, if you will, uh, that retailers are going to probably have to start increasing promotional activity in the face of. And what that means for margins and, and, and activity uh, over the next couple of months is going to be, I think, the story for the space in the sector. Hey, finally, Nancy, you know, we, we led into the segment talking about what's been on fire and that's been experiences really, right? Uh, hotels and travel and cruise lines and air, airfares. Um, and then this Nike quarter kind of leads you right back to this idea that the consumer kind of bought enough stuff and continues to spend what, what savings they do have remaining or what paychecks they have remaining um, on, on things to do. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I, I do think, you know, the high-end goods are, are probably going to be okay. But in here, that's absolutely right. You're seeing, I mean, you just get on a flight. They're packed. And, and that was pre-summer. So we're going to continue to see people traveling and enjoying themselves. And at some point, you know, if inflation doesn't come down, real wages haven't, haven't gone up material at all, actually. And so you will see them start to, to, to cut back on some of the goods and particularly stuff they don't need. They don't have to have. Well, Nike's, so the- uh, we'll see what Nike does to the market tomorrow. Obviously, consumer uh, names are going to be on the move. Uh, Dan, Nancy, great to see you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Meantime, here's what happened to your money today. The Dow did gain 270 points, eight tenths. Uh, the S&P up 20, up 45 tenths. The uh, Nasdaq flat. The biggest winner of the day was Catalan, biopharma company in New Jersey, up 6.7. Biggest loser, kitchen staple McCormick, was down 5.5. Take a look at how futures are faring and things are shaping up for tomorrow morning. Mixed picture right now. Uh, we are looking for the Nasdaq to hopefully hold some gains. Up next, a controversial new EV plan from Uber that could have its drivers eating dust. Plus, the Supreme Court puts a stop to affirmative action in college admissions. Could it force a reckoning on diversity efforts in corporate America? We're back in a moment. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, a controversial move towards zero emissions. Uber announcing it will eliminate gas-powered vehicles in its driver fleet by 2030. Here's the Uber CEO speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival, in which NBC Universal News Group is the media partner. By 2030, every single driver on the platform will have an electric vehicle because it would be crazy for them not to. Okay. Um, and our job is to get to that spot. But, you know, in 2030, if a driver isn't driving an EV, then they're not going to be able to be on our platform. That's essentially what our goal is. Uber is currently paying drivers that drive EVs more than those that who, do, who do not. 
Next up, an update on the frustrations in the skies. The president of JetBlue joining United CEO and blaming the FAA for the slew of flight delays and cancellations over the past few days. JetBlue's president says the company's investigating why thousands of flights were affected due to what she says are unexpected air traffic control restrictions. The FAA has denied that a shortage of air traffic controllers are to blame for the delays, has instead put the blame on bad weather. So far today, over 5,000 flights have been delayed in this country, an additional 1,700 flights canceled. That's according to FlightAware. And finally, from commercial air travel to fighter jets, the U.S. State Department approving a $5.6 billion deal to sell 24 F-35 fighter jets to the Czech Republic. The move comes as several NATO countries are ramping up defense efforts following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The jets are manufactured by Lockheed Martin, and the deal would also include engines, missiles, and other supplies. That sale will require congressional approval before being finalized. Meantime, today the Supreme Court ruled against the affirmative action in college admissions, and that could have significant implications for corporate America. Joining us tonight with more CNBC's Emily Wilkins. Emily, good evening. Good evening, Carl. Well, that's right. Colleges will no longer be able to use race as a factor when deciding which students to admit after the Supreme Court's conservative majority overturned decades of precedent today. President Joe Biden asked the Education Department to analyze practices and tools that can help colleges have a diverse student body. He also called on businesses and corporations to find ways to ensure a diverse workplace. Companies, companies who are already realizing the value of diversity should not use this decision as an excuse to turn away from diversity either. Chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, Stephen Horsford, a former CEO, tells me that today's decision should not alter the focus businesses place on diversity. There is still a business imperative to support diversity, equity and inclusion. Why? Because it's imperative for those businesses from a consumer standpoint from uh, the, uh, the, the input of their employees, which are stakeholders, as well as in the communities that uh, those businesses operate. According to Fortune's latest rankings, there are now just eight black CEOs leading a Fortune 500 companies, a record since the rankings debut. But black CEOs still make up just 1.6% of all Fortune CEOs. And Carl, in her dissent, Justice Sotomayor referenced industries and professions that benefit, benefit from race-conscious college admissions. She went on to say today's decision could make pipelines to leadership roles less diverse. Back to you, yeah, Carl. Some of, some of those dissents were interesting to read today, Emily. Uh, by the way, we're not done looking for decisions this week, right? We are not. We are expecting at least one more big blockbuster case from the Supreme Court tomorrow. You remember President Biden's uh, proposal to forgive up to $20,000 in student loans. Uh, the Supreme Court has been, is expected to make a ruling on that case tomorrow on whether states have the standing to even bring the case and then if the case has enough merits to even go forward. Uh, big implications there for the consumer, as we said last block. Uh, thank you very much, Emily Wilkins. Dig further into the decision today with our next guest. Joining us tonight, Wes Moore, the governor of Maryland. Governor, it's great to have you on Last Call. Thank you so much. You're a former investment banker with Deutsche and City. You've written several best-selling books about race and equity and opportunity. Your reaction to the decision? My reaction is that this, this decision was, was, was wrongheaded and misguided. Uh, I can't say that I'm terribly surprised that the decision was made, looking at, the, at some of the prior decisions of, of this Supreme Court. Um, but the thing that I know is that while as a state, 
that we're continuing to to digest the the results and what it means for us. Now, I have spent today with leaders of higher education, both the public and private institutions here in the state of Maryland, and we are as committed as ever to ensuring that our institutions of higher education that they're reflective of our society and that they are doing the job of actually preparing our young people for the world that they are going to inherit. Uh, if you look at the University of Maryland and our flagship, uh, our flagship school, there are 26 indicators that we will look at, that they look at when they're looking to admit students. Uh, and while race and ethnicity uh, are, are one of them, there still are dozens more indicators they will look at. And I know that the leaders of our institutions are committed to ensuring that they have a, a diverse student body and a student body that it can prepare all of their students for the world that they'll walk in. That was definitely the tone from all kinds of colleges in, in, your, in your state. From, I saw Colby today, I saw Harvard saying, we're gonna follow the law, but we're also gonna adhere to our principles. And their principles, Governor, that arguably are their selling points to students. So I guess the question is, is that, does that thinking have escape velocity now? Is it already so much baked into their business models that this decision, although disappointing to some, may not have such nefarious effects? Well, it is important for people to remember that the reason that we had institutions of higher education following the guidelines and making sure that you have a representative student body wasn't because they were just trying to follow a law. It was because it was making their school better. That, that diversity isn't something that we do because we're looking to check a box. It's something that we do because being able to have inclusive voices, being able to have representative bodies, being able to have debate and discussion, and being able to make sure that students who might be coming from a homogenous background can now walk into a place that's better preparing them for the world that they walk into, it makes them stronger. And so I think we had institutions of higher education who were looking at this and saying, listen, we were following this, not because we had a law that was telling us to do it because we believe in the strength of the institutions. Right. And that's an important part of the strength of the institution. That said, though, if I had you back on the show 10 years from now, do you think uh, metrics on, let's say, black and Latino students at major, uh, say, high end colleges would take a hit? Or, or, or do you think that is, that's not likely now? No, I, I think there is a potential that they'll take a hit. And I think that that is really dangerous. Uh, because I think we have seen real measurements of progress uh, since for the decades that we have seen affirmative action policies in progress. We have seen progress when it comes to being able to do everything from uh, addressing corporate pipelines to being able to address completion rates, to being able to address outreach that the institutions are having in various communities that they historically had not had a relationship in. So I do think that these policies have had a distinct impact. And I do think that this the ruling by this Supreme Court could end up rolling back a lot of the progress that we have seen. The thing that I know and that I'm focusing on though, is that while this Supreme Court can make its decision, that the institutions in our state, and I know that I don't stand alone uh, as, as a governor of a state who's already been in conversation with the institutions of higher education in their state, that we are already actively working on ways to make sure that the progress that we have seen over these past decades does not pull back. We mentioned with our correspondent uh, some decisions that we're still expecting. One of them is about the fate of the administration's student loan forgiveness plan, which we said have, has implications potentially for consumers, particularly at the low end, going into the back half of this year and next year. Do you have expectations on that? There's, there's a sense that we kind of know what's coming. I, I think there is. Uh, you know, I, I, you know for, again, from, from this court, uh, I, I, we're, we're, we're expecting the worst, and we're expecting not just a, a, a legal precedence, uh, to be able to be rolled back. But, you know, the, the, the Constitution has always been a living document. 
and a living document that has been used to expand opportunity. But what we're seeing from this court is that it's actually now the justification for restricting them. Now, the thing that we know here in the state of Maryland, uh, I've been very focused on saying that we have some of the best four-year institutions in the world here in the state of Maryland, but we are going to end this myth that every single one of our students must attend them to in order to have economic stability and economic growth for them and their families. It's the reason that we have made millions of dollars, historic investments in trade programs and apprenticeship programs. It's the reason that we are now the first state in this country that has a service year option for our high school graduates. And simply saying for our high school graduates, they don't necessarily have to attend a four-year school right after in order to find success. That wasn't my path. I didn't go to a four-year school right after I finished high school. But the thing that we know is while the, the, the student loan and the decision um, it was an important first step to add a little bit of financial breathing room for students who are taking on a mountainous amount of debt. Uh, we also know that we still have to address why so many students are taking on so much debt in the first place and coming up with alternative pathways for people to be able to have uh, have uh, have growth yes. and, and focus on work wages and wealth. Yeah, other countries have found ways to do that. Uh, we're still we're still That's working, right. to, still trying to chop some wood. Governor, thanks so much. Great to see you, Governor Westmore, joining Great us to see tonight. You. Thank you. Coming up next, uh, Virgin Galactic now officially a part of the space tourism industry. We're going to talk to a former astronaut and space investor about the big opportunities on the next frontier. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome back. Virgin Galactic marking a major milestone, completing its first commercial space flight earlier today. CNBC's Morgan Brennan is in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, with more on the launch and what comes next. Morgan. Carl, a major milestone for Virgin Galactic today. Its first fully commercial revenue-generating flight, kicking off the long-awaited start of service after a string of delays for the 19-year-old company that was founded by Richard Branson. I spoke exclusively with CEO Michael Colglazier on overtime following today's 72-minute research trip for the Italian Air Force to the edge of space. I asked him how big he thinks the suborbital spaceflight market will be. I think it's going to be very large. I think it's going to be a capacity-constrained market for quite some time. Virgin Galactic currently has an 800-person backlog with customers paying anywhere from $200,000 to $450,000 per seat and research and government-dedicated missions like the one today starting at $600,000 per seat. Now, given the OceanGate submersible tragedy last week, the scrutiny that has brought to other types of so-called adventure tourism, including human spaceflight, I did ask about safety as well and whether the company has seen any kind of impact on demand from its customer base. While human going to space with commercial companies is relatively new, the bedrock foundation of safety that this entire company is built around is not new. All of our industry, especially Virgin Galactic, is going to build this and fly when we're safe. Up next, pending inspections and safety reviews, including for this spaceship, Unity, behind me. Virgin Galactic is planning its second commercial mission in August with monthly flights thereafter. Carl? 
Our Morgan Brennan. Morgan, thanks. Uh, despite that successful launch, shares of Virgin Galactic did tumble almost 11% today, but still up about 21% this year. What does it mean for the future of space tourism and investors who want to jump on board? Let's bring in a panel, former NASA astronaut Leroy Chow and Procure Holding CEO Andrew Chan. And gentlemen, it's great to have both of you. Leroy, can you help viewers sort of understand the significance of today? Well, this was, has been a long time coming. Back when uh, Spaceship One flew in, in the early 2000s, Richard Branson started Virgin Galactic and first said we were going to be flying uh, tourists in 2007. So that's fully, you know, what, 15, 16 years later. Glad they finally got there. I'm a big proponent of commercial space flight. There are certainly risks involved, no question about it. And it's all about informed consent. The, the Each individual that gets on that vehicle has to perform his or her own due diligence and make sure that they're comfortable with those risks before they sign that release. And so uh, good to see them finally get going. And, uh, you know, hopefully this will be a shot in the arm for the, the rest of the industry. Right. That industry, Andrew, by the way, is, is what investors are thinking about now. Are, are we moving out of the novelty stage into a period where this is about if it may be high end tourism to start, but eventually just travel overall? I, I certainly hope so. And, you know, what we saw today was, you know, a story of not what we've seen historically with commercial space flight, where it's the celebrities and the wealthy going into space for the most part. So it was one where we're actually using the same technology to conduct research. So we'll see how that affects uh, you know, further further research, further programs, further scientific developments in the future. But this was you know, training, education, and research, which is great for the company to be able to show a more diversified potential revenue stream for its technologies. Now, now Virgin Galactic, I mean, the cash flow projections, certainly the earnings projections, uh, include losses for uh, for a long period here, as far as the eye can see for now. When do you think, Andrew, prices get to a point where it could be something you and I, the layperson, could afford? Sadly, I'm not allowed to make projections. But <laughs> you know, what, with what we're with what we're seeing, you know, they're they're talking about the rollout of of Delta. I'm really curious to see what kind of benefits or new features that that might add or provide for customers. Will this be something that's more uh, accessible as they build out uh, from Morgan's interview earlier? That's something that they would like to do as they are able to, to figure out their costs and technologies better, potentially bringing down those costs that they would pass on to their customers and expand that potential addressable market. So, you know, we're still in the, the infancy space tourism is not necessarily something that most experts are projecting will be a major part of the space economy uh, in the near future. But as prices come down, we'll see how many people are, are really interested in seeing the Earth from a different perspective. Leroy Morgan reported on this all day long. I think at one point she pointed out they're pulling about three Gs. I wonder, can you describe what it would feel like to take this flight? Sure. I mean, 3G sounds like a lot, but it's really not. Uh, you know, on the space shuttle on launch, we've pulled a maximum of 3G, same with coming down on their entry. The reason the flight profiles were limited to that was not for the human occupants. It was for the structural integrity of the way the space shuttle was mounted onto the external tank and also for the structural integrity coming down. Now, on a, on another on a capsule spacecraft like a Soyuz that I flew on on my last mission, we pulled up to uh, a little over five G's, five and a half. That's a little bit more to, to deal with, <laughs> but it just kind of feels like someone sitting on your chest. It takes a little more effort to breathe, but it's not as big a deal as the movies make it out to be. Right. You mentioned the risks, and I think people are beginning to under process that, especially in light of the Titan uh, tragedy, Leroy. Do you equate what happened in the Atlantic to, to what we saw today? 
Well, there are similarities. Of course, humans are going in a vehicle into a harsh environment that they can't survive outside of. Uh, and, but there are many differences, too. For example, what I'm seeing in the news, and I'm no expert on the submersibles, but it sounds like there really is not much regulation or certification at all on these vehicles. On the other hand, um, Virgin Galactic and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, uh, they're under the guise of the F, you know, under the under the authority of the FAA, which grants launch licenses, landing licenses. They do not certificate the vehicles. That's an important distinction. Uh, the way that the FAA does for airlines, you know, for airplanes that airliners use, for example, and so you don't have that same level of, uh, if you want to call it safety. The reason is there are not enough data for the FAA to be able to do that, and also the idea was to let this let this industry give it some breathing room to, to develop itself and shift the burden uh, to the individual taking the flight to you know make his or her own decision about getting on the vehicle. Yeah, that's a key distinction and industries like it when regulators let it flower a little bit uh, before they really focus on investor and, and passenger protection. Uh, Leroy Andrew, fascinating day. Appreciate your help. Thank you. Still ahead, the viral tweet that has housing watchers buzzing. Could a warning for prices be coming via Airbnb? We're going to dig into that next. A viral tweet has captured the attention of housing watchers and raised the prospect of lower home prices. The tweet, which was posted on Tuesday, claims that revenues per listing for Airbnb have dropped by nearly 50 percent in cities like Phoenix and Austin, Texas, over the past year. Now, CNBC was not able to verify independently that data, but the analyst named Nick Jurley suggests this could trigger a wave of forced selling from Airbnb owners later this year in the areas hit hardest by this revenue collapse. His tweet has been viewed more than 33 million times and liked and retweeted tens of thousands of times. In response to the tweet, Airbnb says, quote, the data is not consistent with our own data. As we said during our Q1 earnings, more guests are traveling on Airbnb than ever before, with nights and experiences booked growing 19 percent in Q1 compared to a year ago. Airbnb also directed us to another tweet from AirDNA chief economist Jamie Lane. He says, quote, let me get some facts straight. There is not a collapse in revenue per available listing happening. Is it down in 23? Yes. Is it down 40 percent? No. I've pulled the numbers from AirDNA's data set mirroring the analysis done by Nick Jurley. What do we find? The average market listed has seen RevPAR decreases of about 3.6, not 40.3. Given the high interest in that post, we thought we'd have Jurley on and get to the bottom of it all. Jurley is the founder and CEO of Reventure Consulting, a real estate research firm. And Nick, it's great to have you on Last Call. 33 million views. I just wonder if you are surprised by the virality of your tweets. You know what, Carl? First of all, it's great to be with you. But secondly, I am not surprised because I think a lot of people know that the Airbnb market has boomed over the last couple of years during the pandemic. Lots of people bought Airbnbs, uh, deprived the housing market of listings, and now that bubble is collapsing. So I'm actually not surprised that there was a lot of interest in it, especially given the cities that were involved, like Phoenix and Austin. Is the thinking that there were a wave of people who bought property that they cannot afford without this income? Oh, 100%, especially because a lot of these owners use what's called DSCR loans to purchase these properties. These are loans that uh, lenders will give to Airbnb operators where they actually don't verify the personal income of the borrower, but it's actually based on the income of the property. And so long as the income of the Airbnb property is high, things are good. 
But if income on the Airbnb property goes down, then these owners and operators have some problems because uh, their lender is not going to like that. And it could trigger a default on these DSCR loans. All right. How does it square with obviously Airbnb's response, which we which we read and just the general sense that there is a uh, a wave of pent up demand for travel? There's a huge nest egg, at least among baby boomers, uh, 75 trillion by some accounts. That's going to get spent over the next couple of maybe decade or two. Um, and that's going to involve uh, needing lodging. Does that this sort of flies in the face of that, doesn't it? Yeah, somewhat. And I just want to actually draw a distinction between Airbnb's corporate success and the success of an individual Airbnb operator. Because Airbnb is right. Their nights booked have gone up. The issue is the supply of Airbnb listings has gone up by more, especially in certain cities like Phoenix. So when the supply of listings exceeds the demand, you have issues for the owners and operators, even though Airbnb at the corporate level still thinks uh, things are pretty good. Right. The markets. And then to address. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, so just your second point about, uh, you know, are, are people going to need a place to stay? I think you're right. They will need a place to stay. The trouble is Airbnbs are a very discretionary uh, item to spend money on. And especially in like a recessionary environment, you know, I don't necessarily think Airbnb is going to perform that well. Right now, the unemployment rate is only 3.7 percent or thereabouts. I mean, what if that unemployment rate goes up to six or seven percent? I think one of the things people are going to cut back on is discretionary travel. So I think from a just a secular standpoint in the in the near term, there could be more headwinds coming for these Airbnb yeah, operators. If we, if we if we go to six percent unemployment, uh, we could have much bigger problems to talk about. I do want to point your attention to inventory for sale. I'm sure you I'm sure you know the number of homes for sale in this country has never been lower. Um, it, selling at this point, if you're going to buy somewhere else, would require you graduating into perhaps a higher rate. I mean, there still is a sense that people aren't selling because they've got these velvet handcuffs of rates below four. That's a great point, Carl. I mean, why would someone want to give up a 3% mortgage rate to trade that out for a 7% mortgage rate and buy a new home? The thing to understand about that, though, is that's actually not really a net impact on inventory. It's someone not listing, but also not buying. The real problem right now that's constraining inventory is that we haven't gotten to the point yet where the discretionary buyers during the pandemic feel forced to sell. Those Airbnb owners who purchased, those big Wall Street investors who purchased homes, some of them are just now starting to feel the pain of lower revenues and higher vacancy rates. And I think as they continue to see the pain, you're going to see more of those discretionary owners who don't actually live in the home, but own it for an investment or a speculative purpose. I think they're going to be the ones that actually increase inventory over the next couple of years. Finally, you said that there would be more data to come in the coming weeks. Are you standing by the numbers that you tweeted for now? Yeah, I think both of those sources, AirDNA and All the Rooms, are reputable, but the differences between them are big. So I'm going to do more research and uh, understand what's driving those differences and do a follow-up tweet and a follow-up YouTube video. I will say this. There's a bunch of places, though, that both of those sources agree, most namely that the supply of Airbnbs has absolutely exploded over the last year in certain cities. And that now you have, like in Phoenix and Austin, two to three times more Airbnbs on the market than homes for sale. What does that mean when there's a uh, downturn in the Airbnb market? I think it means more forced selling. Yeah. What's ironic is that the, the actual hotel industry this cycle has been pretty disciplined. It would be ironic if it were the disruptor who ended up end up adding too much capacity. Uh, Nick Jerley, thanks so much. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Carl. Great being with you. Coming up, one of the biggest financial players in the game hopping onto the Bitcoin bandwagon. Stay with us. Welcome back to Last Call. Time now for our Last Call watch list. First up, three companies making their IPO debuts today. 
Kodiak Gas Services, Fidelis Insurance Holdings, and Savers Value Village. Kodiak and Fidelis did close in the red, but Savers Value Village did leap. Their debut is another positive sign for hopes of an IPO market comeback. Also catching our eye, Jovi Aviation. Shares of the electric air taxi company soaring up over 50% for the week. Two major pieces of news driving those gains. It received a critical permit from the FAA to start test flying its electric air taxi prototype and getting a $100 million investment from South Korea's SK Telecom. George Jetson, here we come. Maybe. Next up, Apple just a hair away from reaching a $3 trillion market cap. It last saw a market cap that high in January of last year. Stock now just a little over a buck away from the magic number, which is 190.73. And finally, we're looking at Bitcoin. It's in the green at this hour. Financial giant Fidelity now entering a new crypto race on Wall Street over these Bitcoin ETFs. Joining us for more is CNBC crypto reporter Tanea McKeel. It's great to have you. Great to be here. In the early days of the crypto race. It was all wait till the institutional money starts coming. And it's it's they're still here. Yeah, it's certainly become a meme. Every time an institution has put out a piece of research or done a proof of concept or some kind of test, um, that has really become the meme because despite crypto's anarchist roots, there is a pocket of crypto that does believe that in order for it to fully scale and, you know, do what it was meant to do, the institutional money has to come in. It's got to be coming from client demand, don't we think? I mean, Fidelity would be doing this because their their clients are calling for it in some way. Absolutely. And I also would mention that Fidelity has been, uh, you know, a huge proponent of crypto for a very long time. They've been a little bit quiet. But remember, we were down more than 60 percent on Bitcoin in 2022. And that was the year that Fidelity both decided to offer Bitcoin as an investment in 401k plans and also in late November, post FTX's collapse, decided to launch a retail Bitcoin trading app. So they, they've been optimistic about Bitcoin and they're just falling in line with all of these other uh, institutions that have put their name in the hat over the last couple of weeks. And that really was set off by the BlackRock application a couple of weeks ago. What do you think it says that the interest has been so stubborn in the face of what appears to be at least an SEC that's getting more uh, more vigilant in, in enforcement on all kinds of directions. It's interesting timing. I mean, uh, look, Bitcoin is up 80% this year. So I don't want to say that it's, um, you know, struggling this year, but the industry has really been under massive pressure from the SEC. And the timing is extraordinary to see right after it brought lawsuits against two of the biggest exchanges in the world to see BlackRock come out with this. And, you know, on... On the ETF issue, I think we can debate all day long, you know, how it's going to come together, when it's going to come together. But if you step aside and listen to what these institutions are saying, you know, I was at Coinbase Summit last week and BlackRock, Fidelity, Franklin Tumbleton all stood up on stage and said, you know, we're in this for the long haul. So just despite what regulators, how regulators come together, they're going to get it right eventually. And when they do, we want to be ready for that. Are you beginning to see uh, fresh targets what, what, where we could be in 12 months or year end if, in fact, a lot of these ETFs come to fruition? It's interesting. I think as the, as the ecosystem has matured and even on the institutional side, you see a lot less focus on the price. There is this story every day that Bitcoin is a good long-term story, but in the short term, it's bound to be a little bit messy. It's bound to be a little bit volatile. We do know, and I would say that the Bitcoin halving is due to come up in about the spring of 2024. So it's a little bit technical, but it's pretty much a market-making event that happens about every four years. And when it does happen, there tend to be significant price surges. Institutions have been left out of that since the beginning of crypto, and they've 
really don't want to be this time around. Finally, of the reasons to own it, it's, you know, mechanism for payment, inflation hedge, have those reasons changed? Or are those, are those use cases still the same as before? I guess it depends who you ask. I think here in the U.S., it's probably not going to be something you pay for your coffee with on a day-to-day -day basis. I will note that all throughout 2022, with the inflation rising, with the Fed rate hikes, it has traded for most of that year closely with stocks, and it's now hit recently its lowest correlation with stocks since December 2021. Mm -hmm. So that's good for investors because that makes it more likely that it's a true portfolio diversifier, right. but generally it won't completely decouple from the macro. Yeah, the one-to-one the, the -one correlation with the triple Qs was, was confusing <laughs> for some. Tania, thank you. Good to see you. Thank you. Tania McKeel. Coming up, how America's most powerful CFOs are preparing their businesses for the AI revolution, and it's not what you'd expect. Next. Welcome back. New data from CNBC's CFO survey has shown a surprising amount of caution from business leaders in future AI investments. 40% said they're still evaluating new investments in the technology, but being cautious while 31% are accelerating investments. How do they think it will impact the workforce? Unfortunately, those results are not very optimistic. Look at this. Only 18% of those surveyed believe AI will create more jobs than it will destroy, while 40% believe the exact opposite. It will destroy more jobs than it creates. So which is it? Joining us tonight for more on how AI may impact the workforce, co-founder and CEO of REC Ventures, Matt Higgins. Matt, it's great to have you help us dig through these results. I guess first, your, your general reaction to CFOs who are in charge of help writing a lot of checks. I mean, my first reaction was one of horror, <laughs> and I'm actually glad it's anonymous because <laughs> they're going to regret it one day. First of all, take a step back. The CFO should be an early adopter of AI because that's the low-hanging fruit. And you can go on Twitter right now, and you'll find 20 different tools that could potentially make somebody's job a little bit easier, potentially take something that was outsourced, bring it in-house. The CFO should be the one sending the annoying, annoying email to the CMO saying, <laughs> hey, can't we use mid-journey to do PowerPoints? Why do we need that firm anymore? Right. So I thought that was a little bit shocking that it's 18%. Although uh, and my, it sort of sorry. backs up. We hear it's, it backs up what we've heard from at least some of the large consulting firms, and that is they know they have to spend money. They just don't know what to spend the money on. Yeah, I think it's probably a reflection of ignorance. And if you sort of zoom out for a second, it explains why, if you look at America, you only have 25% of companies reporting that they're deploying AI. You look at China, that number is 58%. A war uh, is already underway that most people don't even realize has started. And if you look at the report that came out from uh, Price Waterhouse, they said that uh, AI would basically contribute 14% net to the GDP in the US by 2030. In China, it's 25% perfectly correlated to early adoption. So my warning to, to CEOs, if one of those CFOs is uh, the, among the 18% in your company, you better change your attitude quick because they should be hunting opportunities to do things more efficiently. Right. Your general view is that this is going to create massive amounts of wealth, isn't it? And, and for who? It's going to create for a whole new class of entrepreneurs who, who move early. It's already happening right now. The early adopters of AI are actually being very scrappy, and they're finding about ways to create chatbots, basically AI-trained models where companies can have their own data sources and interact with their customers. They're already working on what's called uh, ChatGPT plugins. Right now, there's like 500. ChatGPT plugins is going to become the new app store. A whole new entrepreneurial class. But take a step back. 
all the consultants are saying it's going to have a net contribution by 2030 of 15%, 17%, whatever the numbers, that's job creation. So I think this is a reflection, to be honest, of ignorance among the CFO class more than it is a, a prediction. I bet you if you asked in a year from now, that's going to be completely changed. Um, the defenders of the technology argue, look, technology has never on a net basis taken away employment from humanity, going back to the earliest printing presses. But it does change the equation for those who are in school trying to decide what job to study or what major to, to take. Uh, how, do you, how do you think about that? What do you tell young people about that? I tell young people that AI is the great equalizer. When I was a kid growing up dirt poor, I sold flowers on street corners. Today, I spent a hundred bucks and I'd launch a business by tomorrow morning and I'd roll it out to you, Carl, right? You can go ahead and, and basically create unfathomable opportunities and it's the great excuse killer. You no longer need money. You no longer need pedigree. You don't need a team. So while we're so focused on worried about job uh, displacement, what we should be celebrating is that you don't need an education anymore to create a business. You don't need a PhD and you could do it from Indonesia. So I think it's going to bring a whole new class of people up and create a whole new class of new entrepreneurs. Well, we've been told the world is flat. Uh, it might just get a lot flatter, uh, Matt. <laughs> it might. I hope yeah. it does, actually. That'll be the great contribution. I yeah. uh, appreciate it very much, Matt. Thank you, Matt Higgins Thanks. tonight. Meantime, with Apple just a hair away from that $3 trillion valuation, arguably the most important moment in its history happened 16 years ago today. It released a product that would change the world. iPhone mania hitting the U.S. in a huge way today. Thousands, and we are not exaggerating here, thousands of people are lining up to buy the gadget. Our former colleague Aaron Burnett wasn't kidding. Look at this video outside the Apple store in New York City. People waited days to get their hands on the iPhone. It was a game changer. Remember all those buttons on your old phones? iPhone users could finally call, text, and take pictures with a simple tap, flick, or pinch of their fingers. As you know well, the iPhone became a hit. During the first six months of the launch, iPhone made Apple $123 million in revenue. For contrast, the company banked more than $205 billion in iPhone revenue last year alone. That is Last Call for tonight. We will see you tomorrow. Shark Tank is coming up next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.